physical safety. And um, I've had uh, like the experience sometimes that's quite remarkable of trying literally to walk across a room that's perfectly safe or down a city street, broad daylight, relaxed, perfectly safe without one molecule of anxiety. It's really hard because the brain is continually generating a low-grade background trickle of anxiety because that's what's called uh, signal anxiety. It's this ongoing signal that something could be horribly wrong, right? Now, for some people, based on either temperament or life experience, etc., that background trickle of anxiety is more like a stream, even a flood, all right? Panic, a panic attack is a flood of anxiety, all right? The problem is most of that background trickle of anxiety, that ongoing wallpaper in the mansion of the mind, is not a signal at all. It's just noise. It's meaningless. Because the truth is, at this moment, I'm basically all right right now. You're basically all right right now. Sometimes we're not all right. But generally, if we are all right, why not register that fact? Okay? And, you know, if you think about it, our ancestors that went through, or creatures, organisms, you know, a million years ago, 200 million years ago, that were real cocky and confident and not nervous at all, life's good, man, swinging through the trees, they got eaten, right? Because they were not looking around for the shadow overhead or the slither nearby. You see birds on the ground or mice, etc. They're constantly looking around, right? They're the ones who passed on their genes. And we're their grandchildren at the top of the fruit chain, armed with nuclear weapons, nervous and cranky. So that's in us. What are we going to do about it? Right? That's the situation. And to uh, um, punish you, if not really, but with a little cycling go up here, the classic paradigm is to take something that is inherently unpleasant, right? Like physical pain or to a rat, a really loud and awful noise. Take something that's inherently unpleasant and associate it with something that's neutral, like living. The problem is, oftentimes, unpleasant stimuli get associated with just living, just breathing, just being, just looking at another person in the eyes. Uh, or, as we did in this practice just before the break, just calling up or attempting to call up the felt sense of being cared about, which then associates really quickly with feeling rejected or excluded or unloved. Right? Which is, by the way, a very natural thing that happens for people. And if it happened for you, um, I wish I had mentioned it before I did the practice. I apologize. And also just to say, if it does happen, it's natural. And as soon as you can, try to bring your attention back to the sense of allies, support, some kind of caring, some kind of being liked, some kind of being appreciated or respected, some kind of even being cherished or loved. Some kind. Right? And as a detail about that, Tell a little quick story here. My mom, who's no longer alive, very loving person, and also someone with a big and often prickly, critical, fault-finding personality. Okay? Does anyone else know anyone like that? Okay? All right. So, for quite a while, especially in my 20s, I was put off by her personality, my youth and my 20s. And uh, the problem was, when I was put off by her personality, I could not get the love. 
So at some point I started relating to her because I'm a visual kind of guy as if her personality was like a lattice work with vines and brambles with thorns. And yet behind the lattice was this bonfire that was radiating warmth and light. The part of her that always loved me, truly always loved me. I really knew that. Um, and so I would intuit that in her, or frankly, I would just imagine it when it was really hard to see in her and just kind of ignore the rest to help myself, not to let her off the hook, as it were, although I did in some sense, but to help myself, because that was the supply I needed. I needed to feel that warmth and light. So the point is, the pie, as it were, of the relationship may be far from perfect, but there's at least one slice in that pie where you know you matter to that person. Behind their personality, there is caring, there is goodwill for you. Okay. Okay. So... What to do about this, right? What we need, and boy, I just have come to appreciate this more and more, you know, are many little moments of associating a basic experience of being okay, not perfect, but basically okay, if that's actually the case, associating many little moments of being okay with life itself. So increasingly, we realize that we do not need to be afraid. We do not need to live with fear. We should very appropriately see if it's a red light and stop at it. You know, we should realize that certain kinds of people are not safe to be with. Okay, we should you know lock our front door at night, whatever. But to live increasingly free of free of fear, particularly needless fear, and lay down a thousand little tracks a thousand little stitches in the tapestry of the mind of feeling that it's basically all right, right now. This has become a very important practice for me, to notice that you're all right, right now. What's curious about it is you realize how hard it is. It's almost, what? Because you're sitting here, you're a spirit rock, it's not perfect, but you're basically all right. Try it right now. See if you can give yourself the gift of the experience of being all right right now. And see how long you can sustain it. It's weirdly difficult. If you're really in touch, I think, unless you're very lucky. Uh, but for me, at least, it's weirdly difficult. And I have a pretty trained mind to, to stay with feeling all right. It goes against the grain. It swims upstream against the evolutionary neurological rivers you know, that have developed. Okay, so to do this, I'm going to do, for the first time, uh, this little guided practice. So it could be a total bust, I hope it's not, um, of doing this and relating it to the different kind of neurological, the three levels, if you will, the three motivational systems, and um, doing it as a practice, which then, if you like, you can build on in little moments out in regular life, out there in the world. Okay, you want to try it? Unless, is there any question about this conceptually? Yeah, Tom. On on the third bullet, the last sentence, it says, I'm actually all right, even if there is... Oh, thank you so much for bringing... (laughs) It's a great question. In other words, 
it's the idea that you realize that even if there's anxiety, it's noise. It's meaningless. It's actually a false negative. It's a false signal. It's a false alarm. It's kind of like the alarms going all day long. I don't know about you, one time as a grade schooler, after school, you know, I pulled a fire alarm. I was in the fourth grade. I wanted to see what happened. <laughs> I was never caught, but boy, was I scared. <laughs> I paid a price still, you know, the fire came and all that stuff. Anyway, but we have these alarms, but they're false alarms. Walk through an airport. It's trippy. You know, um, threat level orange, da -da 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 -da, all that stuff. You know, you go to, my relatives are in North Dakota. You're flying to Bismarck, North Dakota. Not a terrorist target, okay? But guess what? You know, threat level orange everywhere. Well, I was a risk analyst. You know, orange is the last stop before red, okay? What's the odds of a bad event on your flight on this day? It's threat level chartreuse, a swimming pool of green paint with a drop of yellow. That's the actual odds. We go through life feeling that we're in threat level orange. It's a false alarm a lot of the time. And so uh, the point is, don't be alarmed that you're alarmed, in effect. Now, obviously, you want to be alarmed about the real tigers. You don't want to make that mistake. But so much of the time, it's a th false alarm. That's what I mean. And so then what you're doing, which is good practice and very powerful, is to regard fear as just another content of mind. It's a dark cloud moving through the sky of awareness. Just one more content of mind. We don't privilege fear. Just because I'm afraid does not mean necessarily that I'm being threatened. Because fear arises mindlessly, gratuitously on its own. This has been really cool. Because then it arises. It's unpleasant. But it's the Buddha's shock absorber. There is unpleasant. Anxiety is unpleasant. By the way, of the three poisons, greed, hatred, delusion, hatred includes fear. Very important. Useful point. Um, and so, uh, anyway, to realize it's just content. I don't have to be afraid because there's fear. Very often we get anxious because we're anxious. It's interrupting that cascade. Yes! It's like a liberatingness. We're not so controlled by it. Okay, one more, then I'll do the practice, yeah. Oh, my question has to do with um, being in the moment. Like, you know, it's all about being in the moment, but then there's like being for the future and planning your retirement and stuff like that. So how do you personally like balance yeah. between the two? Because that's really confusing. Great question. So how do you balance the wisdom of be here now, right? right. Be in the moment, be present. There's so much about that. Um, in many things, including Buddha Dharma. How do you balance that with, you know, planning for your retirement or uh, realizing that if you're going to go on a long drive, you need to fill the gas? Totally. Yeah, how do you balance those? The way I look at it is that I'm in the moment planning for the future. <laughs> in a nutshell, I'm not trying to be glib. I mean, really, literally, you're in the moment planning for the future. And, you know, I think that's perfectly legitimate. Or I'm in the moment reflecting on my past. Mm -hmm. right? How's that different than living in the past? You're not lost. You're not too lost. Yeah. If you're really lost in the past or endlessly thinking about the future, then you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. But there's a place for learning from experience. You know, I think there's a place for. Um, you know, planning for the future. There's a place for that. 
the thing is, so much of that, though, is on autopilot in the simulator circuits of the brain, which we're going to talk to after this, talk about after this practice. And so much of that is um, automatic. Or it's maybe bringing up fear from the past yeah. into the future as opposed to, oh, when I'm just present here, what's naturally rising regarding the future? Right. Okay. So much of the time when we're, quote-unquote, in the past or the future, it's not productive, mm-hmm. right? We're just... We're in some kind of negative rumination about the past, which is a real risk factor for depression and anxiety, or we're just fantasizing, basically, about the future. Occasionally that's productive, but a lot of it's not very productive. On the other hand, if, so to me, if you're going to plan for the future, you know, do it in a productive and useful way. Or if you're reflecting about the past, do it in a productive way. And the other thing is, you know, for me, I think sometimes the brain just has to get flabby and floppy. In other words, we we have to we just we we have to watch MTV or we have to, you know, space out watch soap operas or just space out or read trashy novels or we just can't do it perfectly. We need to flop sometimes, you know? I love the advice in yoga that where the value of the asana the posture really sinks in is in the pauses between. Right? So I think sometimes we're too hard on ourselves, frankly, in terms of practice. And I like the Zen saying that we should be with our mind like the skillful rider of a horse, not too tight nor too loose a rein. So, okay. All right. Okay? Want to try this? So I'm going to use the language of the inner zoo, for better or worse, and I'm going to talk about petting the lizard in terms of the brainstem stuff about fear or avoiding harm. I hope you like lizards. I'm not going to use that language all the time. You can use other language if you like. And then I'll also talk about feeding yourself and also talk about feeling connected. All right? And feel very free to focus on one of those more than others. And think of this as a kind of experiment. Okay? So to begin with, come into yourself right here. And we're going to start very elementally with, as you breathe, notice that breathing is going okay. It's funny to think of it, isn't it? Some people are laughing, but breathing is going all right. Now, maybe breathing is not all right. You don't want to lie about it. If you're not okay, you're not okay. But if you are okay, don't be deluded about that, to use the Buddha's strong word. Don't be ignorant of the fact that you actually are okay. Let yourself notice. Breathing is going. There is an effectively infinite supply of oxygen for me. There's all the oxygen I need. Know this conceptually but also know it, as you can, emotionally and viscerally. So there's a felt recognition of the truth of all rightness. Breathing is all right.
if you can either know or literally feel your heart beating. Open to the felt recognition that the heart is beating all right. Your heart's all right. Or more generally, open to the sense of there's a body here. So much about the body is okay. It can sit upright or lie down. It can move a bit from side to side to adjust its posture. thousand bodily systems are working just fine, even if there's some that are challenged these days. Maybe say softly in the back of your mind, I'm all right, right now. like a sense of peace or ease in the body, basic all rightness, regenerated again and again. You might experiment with the language of there is all rightness, distinct from I am all right. second step, based on whatever sense you have, or knowing, whatever faith you have, if you will, conviction that you're actually all right right now, as you can, sense that there's a kind of soothing, or petting, or ease that you're extending down into the most ancient parts of your psyche. 
so that the core of you, the most ancient core, knows that it's unthreatened. Nothing bad is happening. Nothing needs to be bit. Nothing needs to be run from. Continually sending signals of okayness into your core. You might feel it physically in your heart. Okay, so then continuing to give yourself again and again from time to time the felt recognition of being fundamentally all right right now. Now be increasingly aware of rewards coming into you, broadly defined. In other words, um, food has come to you. You're fed right now. Food's moving through your body. You've just had a meal. And in only a few hours, you'll have more food. See what it's like to have a sense of food, being fed. And then more broadly, think of other rewards coming to you. They may not be perfect, but money comes probably, some. yourself to, to appreciate again and again rewards coming to you. 
perhaps things you're grateful for. Perhaps objects you enjoy. You're helping yourself recognize that you are receiving. That the little mouse inside each one of us is being fed. in your work or career, no matter what has felt limited or disappointing, help yourself really appreciate some of the many ways that you have been recognized. You have been valued. You are being valued and rewarded. Work broadly defined to include raising a family, Notice what it's like to feel full, to feel filled with rewards coming to you, fulfilled. See if you can get a sense of something easing in you, something relaxing, some recognition maybe that you've basically made it in at least some ways, if that's true. Help yourself appreciate that you have enough. It'd be nice to have more perhaps, but at least in the ways that you do, you have enough. Help the felt recognition of sufficiency sink into yourself.
And then moving on to the last phase of this little practice, bring to mind as you can a sense of some of the many beings who care about you. Bring to mind friendly acquaintances. I think of the guys who make my chicken salad at the deli, who are friendly with me. It's not perfect, but if I fell overboard, they'd throw me a life preserver. They might even dive in to help me. Just bring to mind a sense of some of the groups you might belong to or teams you're part of, relationships you have. Again, focusing on what is going well, what has gone well for you. opening to feeling loved, if that's there for you, or seen, or respected, recognized. too, helping yourself, helping yourself to relax around relationships. Sure, there may well be more to do, but at least appreciating where you are included. If it's true for you, perhaps having thoughts like, I am loved. I am liked. I am appreciated. And then taking that knowing and exploring what it's like to truly send it to yourself. For example, saying things to yourself like, 
you are loved, and then maybe even adding your name, your own name. You are liked. As if you are hugging or caressing lovingly your own inner being. By the way, um, I'll end very close to five, and so I have a request. Um, unless you truly have an urgent need to leave before five, I request that you stick it out till the end. It can be a little disheartening to have people start getting up and leaving ten minutes into just before the end. A little request. So, a few people, and then I'll go into the next section. How, how was that for you? Uh, did you get anything out of it? Any comments? Yeah. Oh, you got a really deep sense of peace from it. I'm glad. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I like animals. And the idea of realizing that it's a jungle in here, you know, with a lot of creep critters, and just being kind to those poor little critters in there that are scared or hungry, or lonely, you know, and afraid. Right there? Yeah. Um, Nicole? I found it sometimes challenging to take it from a mind level to a body level. Like that that was actually, and I have a pretty good connection with my body, and that was challenging. Yeah. Hard to take it from the mind level to the body level. Very understandable. It was an ambitious practice for me to take you through with a lot of steps to it. And um, I think uh, what I would say is it's very natural, I think, for things like this to begin by being conceptual. And then with practice, though, uh, they start becoming more real. Like for me, I, 
I get this, or I can feel this part of me that is like a little, is reptilian. Start, stop. You know, and like that. I have a lot of affinity for lizards. I've had a lot of trippy experiences with them. And uh, I feel like there's an inner lizard, whatever. So I've, I get it, you know. And then I can really feel this little mouse or whatever in me that just is hungry. You know, as an, most animals in the wild are in a state of constant famine, you know, or, or every, with gorging occasionally. And that is hungry and wants it and looking for cheese and this little whiskers wants the cheese. And I have a lot of friendship with the inner rat inside me, the inner mouse, because those little mice were running around when the dinosaurs thought they ruled the earth, you know? But guess who's here today in the room? No velociraptors, ha 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 ha. Anyway, so I think the more you build, I think there's a place for this, you know, and definitely I relate to the little monkey in me that wants friendship and love and wants to hold, you know, so. The more real I think it is, I think more powerful, so anyway. A couple more? Yeah, right there. It's just uh, the transition when you said fulfilled. Like immediately I switched from having this feeling of yes, like love and so that little. To fulfilled is kind of like a loaded word. Yeah. That I know I'm not fulfilled. <laughs> yeah. So it was hard to do that. Yeah. Okay. So she said it was going fine till I used the F word, fulfilled. <laughs> You know, as it were, and yeah, and again, a little, very understandable, and it's kind of like, if you're doing practices of any kind, certain cues will work for you, others won't, you know, so that's not, that's a charged word, so I would just let that one go. Um, I don't know if you, were you able to record it? Yeah, so you can listen to it again, and it's just one of many words, though. Um, so that's just what I would say about that. Thank you for saying that, and I think that's very understandable. Yeah, I think it's also help if we eat, in a sense, we're fulfilled, you know, by the food we eat. Each breath fulfills us, you know, 15, 20 times a minute, how often we breathe, you know, we're fulfilled by the breath. Um, and one thing that helps me just related to this is to really appreciate that even as we're deeply dependent on this whole web for just pure survival, let alone happiness, on the other hand, we are so buoyed by life. You know, so many things about life and the world totally support us. And you appreciate that. That's the other side of it. Okay. One more person, then I'll shift it on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you with the good questions. Oh, well, yeah. oh thank you. Yeah. Um, well, I kind of, I don't know if it was my inner oppositional child or what it was, but I had the complete opposite experience that Zen was intended. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know you personally, but I, from your questions in nature, and I suspect it's true for just about everyone here, you know, we're practitioners, and we, we're not super saints, probably, I'm not for sure, but we're practitioners, and sometimes what happens is we bump into something and go, huh, and sometimes there really is no cheese down that tunnel, we, there's nothing to explore there. Other times we think, wow, that one's interesting. You know, and it could be that this is one of those for you. 
to think, huh, and maybe find your own way. The point is the, is the result, not the method. The result is to try, is to keep helping ourselves have a very visceral, regenerated, moment-to-moment sense of feeling safe, feeling fed, and feeling included. And how do we do that, given the negativity, the bias of the brain, and our own personal psychology? Okay? Okay. Well, if it's all right, in our home stretch here, a couple things. First, to kind of emphasize something on the way out the door, if you find value in repeatedly, each day, helping yourself have this kind of basic sense of all rightness, I have found that to be a very good practice myself. And um, also, just before bed, like how, what a wonderful opportunity to feel all right. There you are in bed, you're about to fall asleep, right? May not be perfect, but there's sheets, there's a bed. Think about all the people who don't have beds. Think about the times you haven't had a bed. You know, I've slept in some weird places on the edge of a cliff one night, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. Uh, So, uh, um, you know, and it's cozy and the, you know, there you are, wherever, you know. Anyway, I think that's, for me at least, has been very useful. Many moments of elemental okayness. Okay? So now, if I could, I'd like to talk about a very interesting chunk of science that's come out in the last few years that I think has a lot of implications. So, for starters, think of, notice these two sort of modes of functioning in life. Quote-unquote doing or being. And notice the distinction. I have these paired opposites, as it were. So, focused attention, open awareness. right? Or goal-directed, or nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be. Or further down, future or past focused compared to now focused. Or further down, being evaluative or non-judgmental. You see? Okay. Or further down, the last two, strong sense of self or minimal sense of self. Okay. You see they kind of cluster together. Isn't that interesting? And if you look at this, these two sets, you can see a few things here. First, modern life, and especially conventional schooling, is a deep training in the left-hand column. And what happens if you get those neurons firing together? They start wiring together. All right. Um, second, much of spiritual practice and personal growth is about getting better at the right-hand column, the being column. There are a few people who need to get better at the left-hand column. Most of us, me included, a lot of practice is about learning to appreciate the right-hand column more. Also, if you look at these, you can think to yourself, huh, by just changing the labels of those two columns in a way that's fairly plausible, you can see the ways in which the right-hand column historically has not gotten much respect. So to say things that could be a little charged here, you know, 50 years ago, maybe, the left-hand column would have been labeled masculine, the right-hand column feminine. Or a hundred years ago, although not only a hundred years ago, left-hand column would be civilized, right-hand column would be savage or primitive. All right. You can see there's a larger context here in this, in terms of the social construction of these columns and the valuing of them and the training of people in them. 
Now, interestingly, if people are interested in, for example, something uh, as close to home here as open awareness, mindfulness, it gets interesting to consider what's going on in the brain when we're in these two modes. All right? What studies have shown is that when we're in the left-hand column, typically we're activating networks in the midline of the brain, including the default, the so-called default networks. There's a little technical detail here, which is that when we're more specifically task-focused, not all of the so-called default network gets activated. But uh, generally speaking, when we're in that doing column, we're in the left-hand, we're in the, the midline cortical networks. Uh, these blobs here, the X's are in millimeters, you know, on either side of the midline of the brain. You can see that it's 3, 7, or 11 millimeters within the midline of the brain. These are midline networks. In a different study, you can see Farb at the bottom compared to Gusnard. Now, in this study, people were given two kinds of tasks, a doing task and a being task. Blue is for the doing kind of task. Red is for the being kind of task. All right? So when people in this study were engaged in a task that involved a lot of personal self-reflecting that included thinking about the past or projecting into the future, they lit up um, midline networks, okay? Very close to the middle of the brain. But on the other hand, when they were given a task that's an open awareness mindfulness practice, just be with what's there, letting it come and letting it go, right? Without getting caught up in it, without needing to make sense of it, without personalizing it, without taking it personally. Then they activated lateral networks on the side of their brain, in particular on the right side of the brain, because in this shot, basically, it's a person who's looking at us. So that's the right-hand side of their brain. All right. So the interesting thing is that in these studies, people given a mindfulness task could activate lateral networks. Good news. For about 10 seconds. It was kind of like we've often experienced on the cushion, right? Breath, 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 shopping list. Safeway, money, credit card, my partner's not making enough. What? Breath, breath. See what I mean? Right? The midline take, has a kind of hegemony in the brain. It's a little dictator, basically, in the brain. It's the big boss of the brain very often, and it hijacks these other networks and says, no, 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 we're going back to us. We're the, we're the ones in charge here. All right? The good news, though, is that with training, and in this particular study, just eight weeks of uh, mindfulness training, which is the usual 20 minutes a day, hopefully, for most of the subjects in the study. Anyway, people who did that training were able to stably activate the lateral networks, mainly right-sided, of the being mode. That is very provocative. That means that when we ourselves do practices, we are building up those lateral networks and increasingly able to stabilize their activation with the psychological, mental experiences that result of open awareness, being in the now, speaking of being in the now, um, not taking life so personally, being more uh, involved with sensory objects as they are rather than abstracting or conceptualizing around them, and not being caught up in worry. The 
right-sided, uh, the lateral networks in many ways, are the networks of inner peace. Because when we're in the midline, that's where we're, those, that's kvetch central, right? Or what's that Yiddish word, surus? Good, thank you. Like worries, right? Or troubles. Or what are some other good Yiddish words for the midline network? Mishigas. <laughs> I love it. This is great. I love this stuff. Okay. Anyway, so part of practice, obviously, is to get good at the doing mode if that's kind of a liability for a person. Um, but on the other hand, to do those things that can ground us more in being mode so that we can go there when it's appropriate. Now, personally, I think that people who are really mature in practice are able to move back and forth between these. And there's a place for both. I think creativity, a lot, is we start in the doing mode, we're banging away on the problem, whether it's uh, how to do this art piece or how to solve this scientific problem, and then, bam, we pop out into being mode, and then we have to come back into doing mode to implement the insight we had. Humor takes people into the being mode. It lights up lateral networks. It kind of shakes us up. I think it's interesting, Einstein's account, he said the easy part was figuring out relativity. He could visualize it, you know, out here. But the hard part was translating it into the language of science. You know, so that's, I think. So they both go together. I don't want to be too dualistic here. And obviously, it's a bit of an arbitrary distinction. But we know the difference, don't we? Between just sort of being here now, being present as things are, compared to planning the future or lamenting the past. We know what it's like to have very little sense of self, just hanging out, or a strong sense of me, myself, and I. We know what that's like, don't we? There's a difference here between these two. So, what helps stably activate, whoops, sorry about that, the being mode? Um, the things that activate the lateral, the, these lateral networks, especially in the right side, uh, some of the major ones are listed here. One in particular we've already done, sensing the body as a whole. Gestalt awareness. You know, even if only for a few seconds, until with some practice, it gets more stable for people. Also, panoramic awareness. For example, the bird's eye view, the 10,000 or 30,000 foot view um, of issues or problems also activates those lateral networks. Another thing is as Master, I'll mispronounce it, Sung San, Korean Zen Master, has said, engaging don't know mind. It's interesting that when we are in the midline mode of problem solving, there's a lot of knowing, isn't there? Knowing, knowing, knowing. But we're more in open, spacious awareness, there's a lot of don't know. It's not that we're ignorant or stupid. It's don't know. Just I don't know what it is, or I don't need to know what it is, or I don't need to make sense of it. That's been an internal cue for me in my own practice of meditation to let myself not make sense of what moves through awareness. There's a place for making sense of things, but it's also nice to not have to make sense of things. Another key is to not need to connect mental contents together. It's interesting that uh, diagrams of the activity of the brain show very dense circuits. They're called hot spots in the midline. They're used constantly, including when we're just ruminating. The default network basically was discovered when scientists very wisely asked themselves, what are subjects inside an MRI doing when they're not doing the experimental task? So they went back and they looked at those records and they saw, wow, 
they're, do, they're really active in the midline of the brain. So these networks are very tightly connected. If you look at wiring diagrams of the brain, the lateral networks seem more diffuse. There's less traffic there. They're not so tightly connected. And to me, my hunch is, I say this without scientific evidence, but it's a plausible hunch, that when we're engaged in you know, doing mode, things are tightly connected. But when we're more in open awareness, mental contents are not so glued together. It's like Sokni Rinpoche has said, a really excellent, great Tibetan teacher. He says, the problem is not that we have thoughts. The problem is that we try to glue them together. We try to make them connect or mean things about each other. So instead, we can just let them just arise, pip-pop. You know, more and more I think of the field of awareness as a little bit like um, a fizzing liquid, right? Little neural coalitions try to form around a certain thought. You know, they usually do that within a fraction of a second. Then they're stable for a second or two, and then they disperse out. So it's kind of like having this little bubble emerge here, and that bubble emerge there, and they kind of overlap in their emergence and disappearance, right? All these bubbles. Have you ever looked at the surface of like sparkling soda water, or Coca-Cola, or beer? Not that anyone in this room would ever drink beer, right? Anyway, me included. So, um, so my point is that you see these little bubbles. We can relate to our own mind in that way, as are these little bubbles fizzing up, but we don't need them to make sense. We don't need them to connect. Right. So before we do a practice to finish up today, um, any questions or comments about this stuff so far? Please. I'm seeming to remember that you and Rick had some meditation that worked to balance the lateral and midline networks. It was something about taking your attention to the outer bits of your body and then back into the center line. Uh-huh. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think I do. Um, in a little bit, I'll do a practice with you that's like we did previously of trying to be aware of your skin. And that's, that will tend to force activation of those lateral networks, especially in the right hemisphere. Okay? So we'll do that in a bit. Yeah. All right. Art making, I think, is a wonderful practice of you know, bringing the two together. Yeah. I, I was in school a long time, and my favorite all-time class was a summer uh, city recreation department pottery class. Just making that stuff. It's so much fun. Anyway. Okay, so any more on this before we dive in? Yeah. Any recommendations about how to take that bird's eye view? Oh, yeah. I'll do it with you in a moment. Uh, what, a couple things here. So first, studies have shown that in two phases, if you start by having people estimate a distance uh, that's either quite close together or very far apart, that's phase one in two groups. And then in phase two, you expose people to upsetting imagery, let's say traffic accidents, you know, tsunamis, things like that. People who have been primed by measuring distances that are very close together are more upset by the imagery. Isn't that weirdly interesting? So to me it goes to the benefit a lot of the bird's eye view, you know, the perspective thing, so how to do it. Um, I think people do it in different ways. One is an NLP method, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Imagine that you're seeing your problem or your thoughts through the wrong end of a telescope. So it's small and very far away. Another is just bring to mind a time when you were maybe flying in an airplane way high above the ground or sitting on a mountaintop looking down and out, perhaps at a valley below. Um, that's a bird's eye view. 
or just you're high up in a wonderful tree as a kid and you're looking down and it's kind of out there in the distance. Those are different ways to call up that, that panoramic view. Uh, other language is to think of awareness as a boundless, because it's edgeless, it has no edge, therefore it's boundless, space, like the sky, or like space altogether. Right. Okay. Any more questions or comments about this before we slide into a 10-minute or so practice to finish the day? This, too, has been very useful for me to appreciate, grounded in the neuroscience, got these lateral and medial, they call medial, midline networks, um, that we really can strengthen the networks of being. And I've also... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.